0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Vanessa Neal. She is a speech-language pathologist and researcher who is deeply passionate about improving the care and quality of life of people with dementia. She earned her bachelor's degree from James Madison University in 2014, her master's degree from Central Michigan University in 2016, and her PhD from the University of South Florida in 2019. She also completed a postdoctoral fellowship in geriatrics with the Durham VA Medical Center and Duke University in 2021. Her research to date has focused on care professionals' attitudes towards dementia, person centered care, and using visuals to support communication of people with dementia. Vanessa is the program manager of a VA funded program that is focused on increasing access to high quality, standardized SLP care for rural veterans with Parkinson's disease. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the Medislp Collective and metaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut... My goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together, we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas, because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself.
1: So I'm Vanessa Neal. I am a speech pathologist and a researcher. I work for the VA Um, Currently, I'm managing a rural health grant that's focused on increasing access to standardized high-quality care for rural veterans with Parkinson's disease. Um, It's part of a larger initiative hoping to expand to other neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's and primary progressive aphasia and things like that. It is a quality improvement project that's it's very user-centered, so it's developed uh, with clinicians, and it's a lot of Changing and and adapting to clinician needs, and also informed by evidence, so it's it's a unique program in that aspect. Yeah, cool. All
0: right, so yeah, one of the reasons I invited Vanessa on today is because I, I obviously love her knowledge in the area of dementia. She works for the collective as a mentor and and gives wonderful. Really, you know, I think what I, what I admire about you, Vanessa, is you have a PhD, you very much understand the research, but you're very clinically focused and clinically relevant, and you can just give these answers that are very easy for clinicians to implement very easily, which I think is sort of like, you know, the definition of like translational research, you know, is, is really what we try to do is put research into practice. And, it, and it's one of the things that I think you do so beautifully in your explanation of things. And I'd really love to just talk a little bit today about, you know, your experience with that, like, and, and, and being a PhD researcher, but then you also did go work in the SNF for a little bit too. And, and now you have a yeah. school where you're sort of a researcher clinician. And yeah, I would just, I, I think it's a really interesting role and I would love for people to, hear sort of more, more about it.
1: Yeah, you know, part of my perspective comes really from being humble to what clinicians are experiencing. And that in part comes because I jumped from my undergrad to my master's to my PhD. So I had, I did my CF during my PhD. So I had really limited kind of boots on the ground clinical time. So You know, my my experience working in the nursing home comes from being an activities assistant and working with people with dementia and having really negative experiences with that. And then going into my master's program, learning about evidence based practice and saying, where is this information being shared with the general public? And so when I am talking to clinicians as a a part of the collective, I'm like, yeah, like I get it. It's hard. And here's what I know about the research. But, you know, I also understand that it's not going to be implemented perfectly in your setting. And that's, you know, something to work on, but it's definitely like the place I come from whenever I'm speaking to someone who is fully clinical time, Um, realizing that sort of that fine print of like, yeah, here's a study I know about, but also you might need to make some tweaks.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I really, I. I love and admire your perspective on that because I think it's, it's hard. Like research is, is tough. And I, I don't know if I've said this, but I'm, I started my PhD. I think I've told people that I was interested in working on my PhD. So I actually did start it. I'm midway through my first semester, but I think what's so fascinating is, you know, there's some people that are in my class that strictly only want to do research. Like they have no desire to work clinically anymore. And then there's all people that there's other people that very much want to work clinically. And I think, I don't like this term like researcher-clinician divide because it doesn't have to be that. I think it just is sort of like a continuum, you know, and and I think there's so much to learn from each other. And, you know, I just, like like I said, I I really admire the way that you say, you know, here is this study, but in the real world, it might not be implemented because I think as clinicians, sometimes, or, you know, I think we don't want to offend researchers. Like we don't want to say, you know, I'm sure your work is great, but it doesn't help us, you know, and that's not, right. that's like, does it feel good to say that? But, you know, it's, I think it's important to know sort of what can be implemented in research right away and what sort of needs some tweaks and nuances. And, and is that okay to do? You know, is that, but I think that's also where that clinical experience portion of evidence-based practice comes in.
1: Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned, I had some a, a sort of a span of clinical time in the past few months and I'll just briefly share the with the listeners why. So my grant funded job through the VA had some unexpected delays and I needed to pay my bills. So I said, Well, I'm have a speech pathology degree and I have my C so I guess I'm going back to clinical practice. And so I had a few months, which is really nothing compared to some of the C's and SLPs that I'm sure listen to this podcast, but that I did work part time in a sniff, and then I worked and another part of that time in an assisted living. And then I was adjunct teaching for University of South Florida all at that same time. But what I learned was that it's not even just the tension between the clinician's practice and research, but it's also your rehab director. It's your, it's the corporate business that owns your rehab company and it's insurance companies and all those things. And the gut wrenching feeling that you are giving someone a different standard of care just because of the insurance they have was really humbling for me and really just made me start to second guess really the, the hope I had for the difference I could make being quite frank, you know, and in this field and, and just how we care for people with dementia. It was, it was a really, Really kind of gut check experience. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, I love the way you said that. And I love that you experienced that, but I also hate that you experienced that because I hate that that's our reality, you know, and I, and I think that's tough because we do hear from SLPs all the time that are like, Oh, that's all well and good, but our administrator won't let that happen or, you know, that's all well and good, but insurance won't pay for that. And so that's just this really tough road and this really tough dynamic that we have to navigate. But you know, I just, I I try to stay open-minded and and solution-oriented. And I think it's just important to try to consider all perspectives. And and sometimes there is only so much you can do, but.
1: Right, right. And all the more important reason for clinicians to be collaborating with researchers, because maybe there is some sort of study we can do where we're figuring out how we treat people with different insurances that allow different frequencies of treatment and, and things like that. And, You know, it's certainly possible. It just needs to be done. Yeah.
0: Let me let me ask you, are there any specific are there any things that really stick out to you of of as a researcher you thought for sure would be easily implemented or something that surely SLPs did out in the field and then in your experiences working clinically thought were a little bit more challenging logistically there? Something that I
1: thought clinicians would do more frequently and that I did not witness in everyday practice is probably just asking really functional questions of how is this impairment impacting your everyday life? Are you having, tr- you know, what do you have to do when you go home and how is this impacting your everyday life and how can we kind of make those adjustments? Um, You know, there, there is an impulse to kind of go towards us, same screening measure for everybody, you know, whether it's the mocha or um, a mini mental, something like that, um, without really prioritizing the, the functional aspect first of particularly in the short term rehab set, you know, uh, setting where the person is eventually going to leave and go into their home or, you know, next level of care. Um, and, and it's important to prepare them for that transition. And I, I didn't see the impulse to really go in that direction. I would say other things, maybe just the the challenges in treating people and the flexibility that you have to have. And so, you know, it's, it's great to say that I could create this lovely Montessori activity for someone with dementia, but if they're still in bed in their soil briefs, It's kind of, it's going to be hard for me to do that activity with them or, or, you know, try to engage them in that when there's clearly this other thing going on. Um, and all the other residents on your list are busy for whatever reason. So it's, yeah, there's just these little logistical challenges that came up that seemed much harder in practice and that really isn't discussed in the literature. You know, they don't talk to you about how do you have a constructive conversation with the CNA you work with about cleaning Mr. Smith up in time so that you can have your session. He's not sitting in soil briefs for an hour or things like that. Like those are the, the things that I really struggled with, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I think it's interesting. I just finished, um, we had an assignment that was, you know, doing a cap, a critically appraised paper for people that don't know what that is. And you basically just critique a paper and, and go through some, you know, criteria, go through a rubric And I was just reading this paper and I was like, this study is really well designed in theory, but there is no way this would happen in a nursing home. Like, and I just, I had this like anger in my body as I was like reading this study and I was writing the cap paper. And so like writing my implications, like writing my clinical impressions part was very easy for me because I was like, this would not happen. Like the authors did not consider this. The investigators did not consider this. And it was interesting because our, our professor said to me like, Oh my gosh, Teresa, I didn't even realize those things were obstacles. I didn't consider those things. And I'm like, that's the trouble with all this, you know, and I don't know what the answer is. You know, is it like, do we have a researcher like have a clinician read this stuff over before they do it? Because like I said, the study was great. It was a perfect study design, but in real life, it could not be carried out like this. And so what is the point of that? Research that like, I know that's a very harsh statement for me to make, but yeah. those were the thoughts
1: in my head, you know? Yes, I, uh, I 100% agree. And I even encounter that as a researcher, you know, reviewing papers and I'll say, you know, if I was a researcher reading this and I wanted to replicate your study, which is essentially what clinicians are trying to do, they want to replicate what they're reading about. I wouldn't be able to because of the lack of detail that you provided and, in, in how you did this, you know, and you don't have to be so detailed so that people are sleeping when they're reading your article, but you can be provide tables, provide lists, provide a sort of procedural list of things that could be a supplemental file. You know, um, if you used a questionnaire, attach that to your article, really practical things that clinicians can take away, other researchers can take away so that they can try to replicate what you did, all the hard work you put in to your study. Yeah,
0: because I think, you know, that that's something that I've just always I always think about that. Like I, I very much understand the, the, the point of, of research that sometimes is just made to push research forward. But I think I get really frustrated when we find research that people think can easily be put into clinical practice and it just can't. And there's just a lot of implications there that need to be considered. And, and that's a lot of my frustration and really the reason I want to pursue a PhD is because I don't want to say, It should be like this. I want to know why it is like this, and what can be done, and how can I be better at doing those things? How can my message be clearer, and how can my research be more translational? How can it be put into practice better?
1: And I I was listening to one of your recent podcasts on the implementation science, and you had two guests. One was Faith. I can't remember the other one, Um, but very great podcast. And I and I remember the part of the discussion was that researchers need to start with the attitude of implementation science, you know, as opposed, you know, how is this going to be eventually implemented as opposed to just kind of testing the intervention? Let's design it with the, with the assumption that it is eventually going to be implemented. And then how would that change our approach? I don't claim to be an expert in implementation science, but it certainly has inspired me. And with my dissertation, it's an approach I tried to take with, Designing a communication tool for people with dementia um, based on preference questions that are already mandated by the government for use in nursing homes. So there's something called the minimum data set. Um, and part of that is a, is a list of questions about preferences towards different activities. And so what my study did was add visuals to those questions so that eventually when one day it is implemented in practice, hopefully, uh, that they will only have to add pictures to the questions they're already asking. It's not that they're going to have to add this questionnaire to the list of things they already have to do with this patient. It's just adding visuals to something they already ask. I think those are the types of things that researchers need to think about, you know, have the end user in mind, have the end result in mind and go from there rather than trying to, you know, reverse at the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that.
0: Yeah. Let's, Um. yeah. I'd love to hear more about, you know, why did you pursue a PhD?
1: Yeah. So for me, the PhD, it's always something I was interested in, but it was really solidified for me when I went into my master's and I started to take a, the aphasia related disorders class that we all take. And, I My instructor was Natalie Douglas, who I know you know, and she was starting to talk about the memory aids for people with dementia, caregiver training programs, space retrieval training, all these things that when I was an activities assistant in the nursing home, I thought, man, that would have been so helpful to know, to be able to communicate better with the patients I was working with, with the residents I was working with. And when I learned that that was her research and that's, what research researchers in SLP were working on. I was like, wow, there's something that can sort of meld my two passions of helping people with dementia and speech pathology. So I really had no concept of that before. And so she encouraged me to do a master's thesis. And that's where I looked at caregiver attitudes toward people with dementia. And I I basically replicated a, a study, a survey study, that was done by researchers I think in England but the it came out of a genuine curiosity of why do different professionals have different attitudes toward people with dementia you know I noticed myself as an activities professional really wanting more person centered care for individuals where I noticed some of the nurses were kind of jaded and and I can think of a specific instance where a vet a, a A a resident had peed on herself. She urinated on herself before dinner time. And I had asked a nurse if that resident could be cleaned up before dinner, right? Shouldn't have to sit and eat your meal with, you know, in your soiled self. And she said, no, she's going to get a shower after dinner. It'll be fine. And that is just something that sticks out to me as like, oh my, that, if that was my grandmother, you know, or my mother, I would be horrified. And so I just came in with this sort of genuine curiosity of why do people think about people with dementia differently? And why are some more person-centered and focused on them as a human as opposed to not? And now I have a better understanding of the different pressures that are on different professionals and what really, you know, contributes to that. But at the time, I was just really curious. So I did that survey study. I was a really kind of nice toe dip into research, so a little... Advice there for anyone pursuing a, you know, that's interested in maybe a master's thesis is that a survey is a really good way to kind of just get your toes into the, the pool of possibilities in terms of research. And I liked it and I enjoyed that, um, sort of that grunt work of analyzing the data and writing it up. And fast forward some time, Natalie Douglas introduced me to Dr. Michelle Bourgeois. Who is a pioneer in our field in dementia research, and and she introduced me at the ASHA convention that year, which was in Denver, and I will never forget that Michelle put her arm around me and said, "Oh, I'm I'm looking for PhD students. You should you should definitely apply." And at that time, I said, "You know, I could never get into a PhD program. No one would ever want me, <laughs> no one would ever accept me," and you know, sure enough, she invited me to apply. And I said, I said, Okay, I'm going to do it. And, you know, I got accepted. And and that's kind of what started my journey. But it really is a combination of like personal experience, excellent mentors, you know, just encouraging me to keep going, you know, and so that's always something I say to people that are interested in a PhD is find a mentor that you connect with. And who cares? I get, (laughs) I get choked up, thinking about it, but oh. that just who cares about you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, Thank it's you so
0: important. Sure. I bless it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. I love that so much. And I think it's something that is really overlooked in this field. I think there's so many amazing SLPs that truly, truly care about each other and are truly passionate about helping each other succeed. And and I, it's something I'm really passionate about too. And so thank you for sharing, Max. I know it's
1: yeah.
0: it's vulnerable, but it's beautiful, but it's it's how we grow as a field and it's just how we continue to help more patients. I think sometimes in our own way and just having someone help pull you out of that and tell you, no, you are smart. You do know what you're doing. You can help these patients. You can contribute to this field. So yeah, thank definitely. you. Well, that's exciting. I, I love that
1: so much. So after my dissertation, which looked at, uh, well, I can start with where my dissertation what my dissertation looked at which was the effectiveness of using visuals to interview someone with dementia about their preferences as opposed to not. And really the find the findings weren't all that exciting except for that we did find that their comprehension had improved with the use of visuals so they there was less repetition on part of the interviewer which was me and their was less questions for clarification. So what what did you say or what what was that you were asking about um or needed, you know, I didn't need to repeat instructions as much when we used in visuals with people with dementia. So, you know, this of course was not surprising. We know the benefits of using visuals when communicating with people with dementia. And so, I worked with a group from uh preference-based living, which is a an organization that's in part led by a uh, Kimberly Van Heitzma, who works for Penn State, and Katie Abbott, who works for Miami University of Ohio. And they've sort of spearheaded this person-centered initiative um, to increase person-centered care in nursing homes. And so I worked with them along with Kelly Nolman-Porter from Miami University of Ohio. And we extended the study to look a little bit closer at the visuals And what we did was we took a sample of of older adults who were normal aging. This, This was at the onset of the pandemic. So our access to individuals who had cognitive impairments was significantly limited. We couldn't get into nursing homes. So we just decided to focus on a normative sample. And so what we did was we did this process called cognitive interviewing. And what that is, is it's originally developed as a method for making sure questions are asking what we want them to ask. So you'll interview maybe individuals or you'll go, you'll do a focus group and ask them the question and ask them deeper things about the question. So if the question was, you know, have you smoked a cigarette in the past two weeks? You know, they would ask really kind of granular questions about like, what does smoke mean? What is a cigarette to you? Like really making sure that the questions are valid. Um, And that's that's one method of validating surveys, and that's called cognitive interviewing. So we used this method to make sure that our pictures were representing what we wanted them to. So we would first show them a a picture, and this was over PowerPoint shared um, on a video call, and would say, what does this picture represent to you? And say it was a picture of someone raking leaves. They might say, oh, doing yard work outside or or raking leaves, um, taking care of your yard, things like that so we collect that information and then we would say what we meant to represent with this photo was this preference question and the preference question might be you know it's important to me to do work outside in my yard something like that and then we would say do you think that this picture matches that question so we sort of would have the the pre-revealing of the answer and then their post kind of reaction of like oh yeah i suppose so like maybe i would add Someone planting plants in a garden or watering their flowers. This is what that question would mean to me. And this is what how I would represent that visually. So we took that information and would kind of adapt our pictures. And there was a whole systematic process for that. And then we'd bring it back to another group of normative older adults and we would ask them their opinions on it. And so eventually we reached saturation in our feedback and we didn't test them any further, but that was really useful in. One, we learned that most of them were valid by the standards we set. They represented what we wanted them to. But also that older adults had unique perspectives in things that they would change, like adding people with different ability levels, like people in wheelchairs. And we really wanted to represent older adults as these active and able individuals. But the reality was, and what our participants taught us, was that not everybody is. I use a cane. I use a wheelchair. You know, how how would I participate in this um, visual that you're showing me? Um, We had some suggestions for increasing racial diversity, even age diversity, a mix of younger adults and older adults. So we had a lot of really important input. And so the next step for that study would be to extend it to individuals with Dementia, maybe a mild cognitive impairment, and then also aphasia, because we'd like it to really be universal to anyone with a cognitive or and communication impairment in a nursing home setting. And that's the work that my colleague Kelly Nolman Porter is doing right now, um, and I'm assisting with, but she's doing the primary data collection.
0: Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. Is there? L- let me ask you, Vanessa. Is there anything? from that project that you think going back, working clinically changed that? Like where obviously you had, you know, your researcher brain on this project, but then thinking of, you know, working clinically, were there things that had changed things for you? It's a great question. What
1: I think about to this day is I might ask someone with dementia what their preferences are and really... This information is collected by a, usually the MDS nurse is who they're called in the nursing home. What gets done with that information, right? Is it just put on a shelf and it's, you know, entered into the, the checkbox of the things the government wants you to do? Or is it actually applied to care? Because when I was doing an evaluation on a resident, I'm flipping through their chart, that MDS questionnaire isn't in there, you know, I I wasn't able to find it. Granted, I was, I was working primarily with the short stay residents, but you know, what happens to that information? And that's kind of why I've started to shift gears in my research and, and look more towards family caregiver training um, and, and working with individuals who are being cared for at home, because I just wanted to have More of a direct impact and who knows that could change in the future. And I'm, I'm here to be the one to say that it's okay if you don't know kind of where your research is going, because I think people need to hear that they look a lot at their mentors that have 30 year careers and say like, Oh man, why am I not there yesterday? You know, but yeah, so it, it did, you know, working in the nursing home did make me think about that and think about like, okay, it's great that we have this communication tool. One, is the MDS nurse going to be willing to use it? Or is she more likely to just call the family and say, oh, what are these answers to these questions? She or he, you know, and then if, if it is done, what happens to the information? So those are the, the questions I ask and continue to ask. And that's something the preference-based living group is working on. They, they have a few projects where they're they're implementing these things called PAL cards and, and preference based living is, this is all information you can find online um, preference based living.com. They have these things called PAL cards where you fill out the preference questionnaire and then that information gets translated to a little card that just kind of has little info about the resident. So maybe uh, of course, of course, like preferred activities, since working with the team, some speech pathologists, including myself, have added, um, communication preferences on that little card and it goes on the resident's door or their room and it is used by care providers to implement that information that's collected in that interview in daily care. So it's on its way, but I, it's definitely something that I had questioned and yeah. you gotta wonder.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let, let me ask you sort of a more specific clinical question. As far as, you know, I know you You said your experiences, you know, you you weren't aware of sort of the challenges with administrative or billing or insurance and things like that. And I know it's always a hot, shouldn't be a hot topic, but it sort of is, quote unquote, a hot topic in doing in dementia therapy for or doing speech therapy for patients with dementia in the nursing homes. And I'm curious, you know, is how that sort of changed for you or... Were there things that you were surprised about that they weren't doing for patients with dementia in a nursing home? Or was there, you know, a billing code or something that got kicked back? Because I know that's always the challenge that people say, you know, with patients with dementia, we can only do maintenance therapy and we don't know if insurance will cover it. And so I'm curious your thoughts on that. Something that surprises me is the continued
1: resistance to using external memory aids and and why that is so difficult to put a calendar or, you know, some sort of orientation up aid up in somebody's room and why that's not something that, you know, anybody can do, whether it's a speech pathologist or not. It just, it it continues to baffle me because it's such a simple and productive solution to the challenges that plague people with dementia and, and in nursing homes and, you know, that, that is really puzzling to me and I just, I don't know, I'll never, never fully understand it and yeah. you know, I don't know. And then, you know, it's also something that kind of really made me think about research and practices is, is COVID-19. So that's something that at the time they were grappling with in nursing homes. I know, you know, they still are to an extent and how do you tell someone with dementia, they can't leave their room? You know, how do you keep them from falling when they inevitably get bored and they want to just mosey around in their room and get out of their wheelchair? You know, it's, it's a challenge and there's all these different obstacles and it's just nothing that researchers have thought of really up until this point of how do we keep someone occupied in isolation and, and things like that. So yeah, just a variety of, of variables. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just
0: curious. I always hate those questions. Like if you could wave a magic wand, what would it do or what would you do? But for you, clearly that's making sure that external aids are used for, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: got it. Well, to, okay, to wave a magic wand, <laughs> that's that actually, actually a great way to put it. Because if I could wave a magic wand, I mean, it would look like everybody with dementia has a job and every or I should say most care workers are sort of universally trained. So as an activities assistant, I would love have been able to take people to the bathroom, but I wasn't allowed to do that. You know, I wasn't, you know, trained and transferring and all that stuff. You know, I won't disclose anything about the SLP or where I was working, but there were times where she would just look at me and be like, let's just take her to the bathroom, you know, and we would just do it together. And that's what you do to get the work done sometimes. And so. You know, in a perfect world, I would I would like to see more universal training of SLPs to be able to to share the burden of care because it's it's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But there are these great videos on YouTube of um, these nursing homes in Australia that have really gone full into doing what's usually termed as a Montessori approach to care, where people with dementia are not just recipients of care, but they are active participants. So they get to help serve meals, set the table What are the flowers? Everybody has a job and a role because those are things we all need and those needs don't go away when you have dementia. So that's what I would love to see in the nursing
0: home. Yeah. For sure. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Yeah. And it kind of it kind of actually circles back to the the orientation aid thing, is because, you know, in the US we're very liability scared and focused. And it's, it's sometimes sometimes unnecessarily, like we misinterpret HIPAA laws and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, not putting orientation aids is sometimes part of that fear because you'll somehow disclose that they have a memory impairment because they have a large print calendar or something on their, on their walls. And, you know, where in, in other countries they take more of a, they assess risk. And, and then if the person is not deemed to be at risk, then maybe they're allowed to cut vegetables at dinner time. you know? So it's, in, in America, we wouldn't think of giving a person with dementia a knife, but in other countries, they have sort of developed this process where they assess the person with dementia and determine what they're capable of doing, what their strengths are. And if it's something they've done their whole life, we know that people with dementia can do retain those abilities. So those habitual actions that we've done our whole lives, like cooking and Maybe woodworking, things like that, um, brushing our teeth, those very habitual things, they can be retained and continued to be acted upon throughout the disease progression because those are some of the last things to go. So, you know, in America, we like to just sort of take away all those responsibilities and do it for the person. But, you know, it's really giving, it's, it's depriving them of, of an independence and uh, a sense of purpose that they really need to thrive. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Mm-hmm. What else, anything else you want to cover?
1: So I'm working with about 10 other clinicians that are around the United States at different VAs and I communicate with them regularly about different aspects of this protocol that we're implementing for people with Parkinson's and that is in combination telehealth and in person. It covers cognition, speech and swallowing and essentially we always have conversations of about you know this piece of the protocol isn't going to isn't working for practice and I'll give an example we ask them to do a cognitive screening now some of these veterans have come from maybe a just had a 6 hour neuropsych evaluation so in that case we'd probably say well you don't really need to do a screening they've just had their assessment you can focus on the person centered aspect you can focus on the subjective report of what that person's impairment looks like in their daily life. Um, So that is kind of the back and forth that I get to do in this project, which is really cool and, and teaches me a lot in terms of, you know, listening to clinicians and making adaptations and really using those adult learning principles of explaining why we're doing certain things and not just saying, you know, I'm asking you to do this, this and this. We use evidence to justify our decisions and then also clinical expertise. So it's, it's sort of a give and take between those things. And then another part of my job is just sort of bugging them every now and then for data and (laughs) reminding them to enter their data. And they're very, they're very kind to me and, and work with me. But that's, that's the other part of the job is just getting that data in. Cool. Yeah.
0: I love it. I just, I think you have the coolest role ever. It's I love it. so.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I can talk a little bit about how I got to work with the VA. That's actually an interesting story. So part of my PhD, I was encouraged to go to different conferences and present at different conferences. And if you're a speech pathologist like me who's interested in interdisciplinary practice and implementation science, one organization that I would recommend looking at and possibly going to their conferences is Academy Health. They have a health data palooza and then they have something called the dissemination and implementation science conference every year. And I believe the conference I went to where this I got connected to my postdoc opportunity was the health data palooza. And I was sitting in a presentation about the VA's quality improvement research in- initiative and I stood up and said so we have all this evidence about you know external memory it's for people with dementia and it's not regularly implemented and and used in nursing homes like what would it take for the VA to take on a project of such of this kind and they answered my question and and this is a this it's called the query program it's huge you know they've done massive projects for quality improvement and so mine was a very small scale thing but anyway they answered the question and then afterward a woman came up to me who was affiliated with, with Duke University and the Durham VA, their health services research program. Now she so when I stood up and answered that that question or asked that question to the presenters, I said, you know, my name is Vanessa, I'm um a doctoral candidate, and yada yada yada. So this is just a note of advice that if you do ask a question at a conference to kind of introduce yourself and say who you are, because she approached me after that and said, Hey, are you looking for a postdoc? And I said, why? Yes, I am. And, you know, had I not said that information, she probably would have had no idea, you know, that I was looking for a postdoc, but having known I was a doctoral candidate, she asked. So I said, yes. And then after some more conversation, we learned that I was, I was more of a rehab behavioral health researcher, not, Um, health services research, which was her area, but she connected me to someone in the Durham GREC, which is the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center. And that's how I got my postdoc fellowship with the VA in the GREC. The GREC is just, it was just one of several in the nation. So you kind of get connected with that network. And, and I was interested in learning about geriatrics and interdisciplinary practice. And of course, being connected with a community of amazing researchers at Duke and, and that's, Another strength of the program is you get connected with, with some university. Um, every Grec has their own university affiliation. So it was a really cool opportunity, but that's kind of how I got involved. So the lessons I would, I would share with others are, you know, don't be afraid to get up and ask questions, introduce yourself and also attend conferences outside your discipline because it can be a great way to make connections um, in the field.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I guess let me just pose one more question to you. If sort of if you could tell clinicians anything about working with patients with dementia that if they might be getting pushback from their directors of rehab or administrators or anything, what sort of advice would you give them about it?
1: Oh man. Learn to speak the language of the administrator. And and it's not something I've perfected. Um, you know, it's definitely a challenge, but if you can use terms and, you know, use the incentives that they are thinking about and the, you know, whatever sort of products that their higher ups are asking from them, if you can find a way to meet your clinical care goals and meet theirs as well, then I would say try it that way because Giving them a lecture on evidence-based practice and speech pathology isn't going to motivate them as much, if that makes sense. And I wish I had a clearer example, but that's, you know, I think speech pathologists who work in the nursing home will know what I'm talking about. And, and, but I would just say, you know, find out what motivates them, what they're being asked to do, who they need to answer to, what those people are asking of them, and then go from there. You know, try to meet your evidence-based practice with those, with those demands on your on your higher ups to get their buy-in.
0: Thanks Vanessa. I appreciate you so much. You have any, any final thoughts, any final words to share with the people? No, it's, this is just
1: really exciting. And I, I think that what you're doing here is great. And, and I'm, you know, just encourage anybody who's interested in research to, I mean, they're welcome to contact me. They're welcome to reach out. Um, but don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to reach out to maybe a professor at a local university and just talk to them about research. Chances are they would love to collaborate with you.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I think, you know, I have said before, I just have so much admiration for you because I think you're just such the perfect example of of a clinician researcher, a researcher clinician, however, you know, people like to word it. I just, you do such a great job of dissecting the research and and giving it to clinicians in a way that, that can be used. And and I think that's a very, it's, it's an art. So I, I commend you for that. And I am so grateful to have you as part of the collective and I know you've helped so many SLPs. And so thank you for being you. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm excited to have you in the PhD realm. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, I didn't have anything else going on. So I decided, you know, finally let's, let's do this. Right. So. Right.
1: Well, a great advice I got, uh, in terms of the dissertation is that your PhD is not your life's work. Get your PhD and get on with your life's work. Meaning you don't have to have the most extravagant project for your dissertation. Just use it as an opportunity to learn how to do research and then go from there because you're constantly learning. You don't, you leave your PhD with a, with a, Toolbox of things, but you are by no means an independent researcher once you get that PhD. Bully yeah. me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I think I, I'm really at this interesting, I don't want to say like interesting point in my life or career, but just a lot of things are colliding in a, in a beautiful way. And I think, you know, I've been passionate about swallowing for so long. I'll obviously this podcast is called swallow your pride, but I've just had experiences with my son that have changed the way that I think about things on a real fundamental level. And it's interesting, you know, because we have all these projects and papers that we do and, and, you know, they'll say, you know, choose a paper that you want to do, you know, your dissertation on. And I still don't know what that is, but I, I would assume it's something in the realm of instrumental assessments or fees or so something like that. So I'll choose a paper to, you know, dissect for one project and do it that way one day. And then the next week, I'm just really upset about something that happened with my son, or I'm really ecstatic about something that happened with my son, and so I pull a paper about you know pediatric therapy, and I'm like, "What is my identity right now? Mm-hmm. Like I feel very cold in different directions, and so it's it's interesting because I've had this passion for swallowing for so long, but I also have this passion for my son and and things that I've real you know theoretical things that I've learned that I'm passionate about too. So I will stay tuned. Everybody we will see how it plays out, but it's, it's interesting. So. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that's the, when our, you know, the mentors that we work with, like my mentor, Michelle Bourgeois, she was getting her PhD long ago when there was no internet, there was no database of a thousand articles that you have to sort through. It's very hard to narrow down a research question nowadays. And so, you know, it's, it's a challenge, but you know, You can figure it out and you can always change your mind. So, (laughs) yeah.
0: All right. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate chatting with you.
1: Thank you. Talk to you soon.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week.